Hi, everybody. My name's Susan, and I've been recovering in the Al-Anon family group since March 17th of 1980. And I'm really grateful for that. I've got a few things I need to say before I really start, and that is that um, this has just been a great, a great weekend for us. Uh, we loved the fact that we got to have breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and breakfast again with uh, with so many different people. So we got acquainted with everybody, and everybody has been so good to us. Uh, we loved our basket that was in the room. And uh, I got two recipes from Margaret <laughs> so I could go home and try to make them. I have her telephone number in case I do something wrong, but I'm going to try. Um, and, of course, uh, uh, I've met Gary, who spoke uh, on Friday night before and uh, enjoyed his talk. And then what a tr thrill to get to hear Carrie. And uh, I thought it was interesting because our stories are really different. From each other, but we have such a common thing, theme that runs through us. And of course, I always enjoy uh, hearing my husband speak. And uh, so I'm going to, you know, he always laughs and says that I remember more than he, he does. But really, it's my story that I have to tell you. Um, what do you think? How would a nice girl like me Get involved with an alcoholic. Now I want to know. So I'm going to tell you how that happened. Uh, we were both going to a little uh, university in Topeka, Kansas, called Washburn University, and um, I was I was a freshman coming in, and I know that he was a sophomore at that time, and I didn't. You know, I hadn't met him or anything, but I joined us. I got asked to join a sorority and a little sorority. And um, it came up time that the pledges, and I was a pledge, had to go to this formal dance. And uh, we were, you know, we had to do singing or something. We did some singing thing like that. And we had to take somebody from the university as our guest. And I was supposed to get a date. Well, Don says the guys I was dating were dummies because <laughs> I don't know, just his opinion. But I was dating a couple of guys and they both got campused because they weren't making their grades. And so I just went to the social director and said, I'm not going. And she said, you're a pledge. You have to go. And I said, okay, get me somebody to go with. And he is who they got me. <laughs> so... <clears throat> Now you know why I was available. Now I want to tell you why he was available. I guess they called, you know, his his fraternity and said, we need to get a date for this gal. And uh, he said, just so happens I'm available. I could do that. And the reason he was available was he was dating a, another gal on campus, and uh, she had caught him in the local bar with another woman, and they weren't exactly sitting up in the booth. So he was available. <clears throat> so, uh, and he was in a lot of trouble with the dean of women and the university because men at that time were not allowed in the women's dorm. And he and another guy went up the fire escape to help a gr another girl with her chemical equations. 
And now that's his was his excuse, but he got caught doing that, and uh, so he had to go report to the dean of women and write things to the dean of women. And wouldn't you know that was the person I had to take with me to the party. And so there was the dean of women and Don and I. Well, you know, I had just seen him, you know, on campus. I really didn't know him at all. But he came to get me. And you guys are slick. You're slick. He came to get me, and I had on one of those little strapless white formals with a little crinoline underneath. I looked very cute, I'm sure. And and he uh, came in a tux, and he brought his ukulele. Oh, my God. And he played... He played a song for me, Ain't She Sweet. It was all over for me. I, I don't know. Uh, I did some years later, I said, uh, was, you know, he didn't play his ukulele anymore. And I said, do you know another song? And he said, yeah. He said, my brother Bill had a still on the hill. So <laughs> I knew nothing about alcoholism. All I knew was that he was a lot of fun. And, uh, uh, the guy had, I had been dating, went off to another university, the one I dated all through high school, was really kind of dull and boring compared to Don, I'm telling you. And, uh, you know, he would do things like we would go to a party, and since our last name is Pope Joy, he would pretend that he was the Pope, and he would marry them for the evening, the other couples. And, you know, and it was just a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun doing stuff together and having fun. Uh, the fact that every once in a while he would get drunk and... uh have to stop the car and uh, throw up <laughs> on the side of the road. I mean, I mean that was kind of exciting to me. I'd never been around anybody like that. And uh, I never occurred to me that he had a problem with drinking. It really didn't. Um, <clears throat> so obviously we got married. And uh, in June of this year, we, we had been married for 54 years. And I don't say that to brag. What I say that for is that I don't know whether we could have done this without you. I don't know that. I don't know that because, you know, getting the program in life happens and that's what happened. But I want to tell you what it was like when he was drinking. Uh, we, we ended up, of course, we got married. We went, we lived in Florida for a little while while he was in the service. And then we moved back to his little town in Southwest Kansas. And uh, we had a couple of kids that had a little girl, a little boy, and uh, he had a job and uh, was working for his dad. And, uh, you know, it seemed like life was going to be okay. But this ugly thing of drinking was really happening. And I didn't know what to do. I, I really didn't know what to do. And uh, we lived in this little town of about maybe 4,000 people and the my family doctor that had delivered both of my babies lived just lived down the street and and Don would get drunk and not come home and uh, I would call the doctor and I would say I, I don't know what to do he's drinking again and finally after I talked to him time after time he finally agreed to come and talk to Don and you know I told Don the doctor is going to come talk to you it's, you're going to be okay and he wasn't even scared. Can you imagine that? <clears throat> so our family doctor came, and he was the kind of a guy, you know, that kind of pat you and say, how are you doing? And and uh, so he started talking to Don about business and so forth. And I was thinking, let's get 
on with this. And so finally he said, Don, Susan says you've been drinking quite a bit. And Don said to him, of course you know that's not true. And the doctor said, of course I know that's not true. What we're dealing with here is a hysterical mommy. That's exactly what he said. <clears throat> and I became not there. I just became not there. You know those movies about how they put the, the woman up in the attic and say she's crazy? That's how I felt. And it was like, it was like this thing that came down over me. Uh, like a mosquito netting, kind of a dark mosquito netting. And I didn't want to see you too much, and I sure didn't want you to see me. And I was that way for a long time. And really, I was kind of like that until I got here to you. It just didn't seem to go up. It just didn't seem to go up, and I was not happy, and uh, things were not going well. But I didn't give up. I didn't give up. I got to thinking, if we had people over for dinner and I served something for dinner and he didn't get drunk, I would think it has to be that food. So I'd try to feed him more of that food. <clears throat> of course, that didn't work. Um, then I decided, we had, I were Episcopalian, and we decided, I decided that the priest could help. And so I went to our priest and told him what was going on. And he said, do not worry about a thing. I can cure alcoholism. And I thought, hot dog. So I don't know why Don went along with all of this, but he did. What happened was uh, we got Don, we got Don and, the, and the priest, and he, he did some things to Don. He anointed him with oil. He prayed over him in tongues. I even tried that. I don't know how to do it, but I tried it. Prayed over, and you know, and he dunked him in the local swimming pool. And he did an exorcism on God. I was really mad at God after that because nothing changed. I thought, you know, if he could have cured alcoholism, he should have. Now, I have a woman that I sponsor that lives in Dodge City, Kansas, and uh, she was crying to her neighbor, you know, about her husband's drinking. And this woman said, I know how to cure alcoholism. And she thought, okay, let's get on with it. She said, what you do is you carry a dead chicken around the perimeter of your house and that will cure alcoholism and she thought it didn't work because the chicken she had was frozen <laughs> now i gotta tell you don's been sober a long time her husband's been sober a long time maybe it worked you just never know i don't put much faith in either one of those methods but you never know dead chickens hey Maybe he, her husband had gotten sober a little earlier if she'd used a, you know, not a frozen chicken. You just, you just don't know. But I just, I tried everything I knew. I did not know what to do. I really did not understand alcoholism, and I didn't really believe that he was an alcoholic. I, I just didn't. Uh, right before we got married, uh, we kind of went around a little ride in the car, and he said, 
I want you to know that my dad is an alcoholic, but I will never be one. You know, I think that's really true. I don't think any person that's an alcoholic uh, believes that they're going to be one and that they, they, they do not want to be one. And, um, so that's kind of the way our life was. And, um, you know, I, I really didn't know what to do. I was just at my ends with, with, I don't, I did not know what to do. And, uh, we'd gotten some marriage counseling and, uh, I don't know whether that worked or not. All I know is that, uh, he kept going and I finally quit with the marriage counselor. Now we, we lived in a little town in Southwest Kansas and it was like about 250 miles to Wichita. And I didn't want anybody to know there was anything wrong in Camelot. So I, you know, I made an appointment with a psychologist that my sister sent me to and, uh, you know, I went down there and talked to him, and what he told me to do was get a job. I don't know how that was supposed to cure anything, but get a job. And so I did get a job, and as a result of that, I I, uh, be, I became a portrait photographer, and I had that business for 20 years uh, until we moved away from that little town. And uh, so I had this woman that worked for me, and Don talked about her last night. Her name was Joyce. And we still keep in contact with Joyce. But Joyce, uh, I didn't have any idea that she was drinking. All I, she and Don drank alike, but I, it, it didn't occur to me that she had a problem. But just right before uh, New Year's, uh, she tried to take her own life in a black, in an alcoholic blackout and was unsuccessful, thank heavens. But She's the one that 12-stepped my husband. She'd been sober about six weeks. Uh, really, now, see, I didn't know anything about AA or alcoholism or anything. And I, when she told me she was going to AA, I said, listen, you don't need to be going. The, those people are crazy. I don't want you going there. You know, I didn't know anything. And, uh, but she started talking to me about her drinking and the fact that she would leave our little business that I had and, and go home, she would stop at her aunt's liquor store, buy a six-pack of beer, and in three blocks she had drunk all of it before she got home. And I had no idea. I had no idea that that was what it was like. But I'm so grateful to her because she did 12-step my husband, and uh, he started going to meetings of AA. And, uh, you know... uh, I was pretty scary at those meetings. They, he finally took me to some of those meetings. And uh, I would stand over in the corner with my arms folded. I didn't want you to touch me. I thought it was really strange everybody was hugging everybody, men and women. And, you know, I didn't want them touching me. I wasn't planning to stay around that long. And But there were a lot of couples that went to that meeting. I'm so grateful for that because what happened was there was a lot of people in Al-Anon at those meetings and uh, they would come up to me and say, you know, on Mondays and Wednesdays, we have a meeting just down the hall and we'd love for you to come. And I would say, no, thank you. I was not interested in that. And so uh, what happened was I would 
I would sleep on his side of the bed when he was not there. Of course, I made lots of excuses for that, but the reason was I wanted to know when he got home. And he'd been going to those meetings, and it was really late one night, and I was doing my deal. I was on his side of the bed, and he came in the room and kind of sat down on the bed beside me, and I said, where have you been? Because it was like 11, 11.30 at night. And he said, Susie, you know I've been to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. They may have gone for coffee out of that after that, or they may have gone to another little town. And I said, I said to him, I said, how long are you going to be going to these meetings? And he said, I think for the rest of my life. And I thought, oh my God, we have come to this. You know, um, I really thought that you would teach him how to be a normal drinker. That's what I thought. I did not understand anything about Alcoholics Anonymous. But what happened the next day after that was that uh, there was a woman that was 12-stepping me all the time, an Al-Anon woman. And, you know, uh, since I was a, a portrait photographer, what she did was she would bring her family in and get pictures made, She, you know, and paying for them all the time. Well, she even got a passport picture, and I'm sure she never left the country. So she was coming in. She was 12-stepping me. I know what she was doing now. I didn't at the time. But after that night, when he said he thought maybe he'd go to AA for the rest of his life, I called her. Her name's Kathy. And she ended up being my first sponsor. But she left her job and came to my house and spent most of the day with me, really. And do you have any of those moments those fabulous moments that that you are just in your head and you can relive them. That's exactly what it was like the day that she came to see me. We had a we we had a little bench up in our bedroom, a little banco, and uh, we sat up there. And I told her all the things. I said, <clears throat> I I don't understand any of this. I said. You know, I was mad at God, and I told her I did not like the steps. I, I was mad at God. I didn't like all that. And, uh, you know, and I said, why can't he drink like I do? I'll have a drink or two, and then I stop. You know, why can't he just have two drinks and stop? And she said, okay. She said, here's the deal. When you have a couple of drinks... There's a little alarm that goes off in your head, and it goes beep, 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 beep. You've had enough to drink, and his beeper is broken. <laughs> I'm not sure where we get that stuff. I don't know that she had ever heard that before. She just made it up. And uh, about God, what she what she said to me was, quit worrying about God. I have enough faith for both of us. And she said, would you go to a meeting with me tonight? And I did. I went to my first meeting. I don't know what they said at that meeting. All I know was that I knew that's where I needed to be. And I just, I just have been going back ever since. I just never quit going. But I whined. I whined a lot.
And they would say things like, do you have a sponsor yet? And, of course, the only one, you know, Kathy was just the cutest thing and just so full of energy. And so I asked her to be my sponsor, and she was my very first Al-Anon sponsor, and she was the one that took me through the steps. Um, Don talked about his sponsor last night, Louie, and uh, if Don didn't mind, uh, I would call Louie and write him out. Now, I can't do that anymore, but it seemed like a good thing at the time, because what I don't know about the rest of you people in al but I wanted him to mind. That was the whole thing. So uh, there was this little conference in, in the Paladora Canyon that Don talked about last night, and, and he, you know, uh, Don came home and he said, Would you, I'd like you to go, and I said, no, I wasn't going with him anywhere. I said, no. I wouldn't go, and uh, he got kind of real sad looking, and he came back and he later, and he said, well, Louie thinks you should go, and I said, fine, I'll go, because <laughs> that was his sponsor, the one I'd been ratting Don out to. <clears throat> we went into Winnebago, and this is how, I mean, I was crazy. Went in this Winnebago with this all these people, and I had my little suitcase, and I had this box about like this big, taking it on the Winnebago, and they said, What's in the box? And I said, games. Why do we need games? And I said, what are they going to do down there? We need something to do. You know, I had no idea what I was going to. I'd never been to any, a conference of any kind. And uh, they let me take the games on the Winnebago. And at some point in that drive, I heard somebody say, let's play a game with her to shut her up. <laughs> Well, we got down to that conference, and I got to hear my very first Al-Anon talk. And this woman happens to be in my line of sponsorship, and her name is Karen. Her name is Karen A. from Laguna in California. And I don't remember much of her talk except for the very first part of her talk. And she said, if you alcoholics think you have a lot of troubles with all your defects of character, think what it would be like if you came into the program, perfect. And, you know, I got it. I did. I got it. I, I just had never thought that way. I, I always just thought it was his fault, nothing of mine. But my sponsor had, at this point had really had helped me get through the first three steps. And then we took a little walk. It's, it's kind of a camp kind of thing like this, and you could take a little trail walk and so forth. And I remember her hands were shaking. When she got kind of nervous, her hands would shake, and uh, her hands were kind of shaking, and she said, uh, it's time for you to write your fourth step. Now, you understand, this was the first full weekend in May, and I had just come in in March, and uh, if that may seem quick to you, but I think it was important that they did things quick with me, and she wanted me to write a fourth step, and I said, I just don't believe I'll do that, and she said, then you'll have to get another sponsor. I think that was the that was the thing that they all told people in that those groups. <laughs> if you don't want a four step, you're going to have to get a new sponsor. So I didn't want a new sponsor, so I did. I wrote my very first fourth step with her. What I have to tell you about that is that what I suffered from 
was the most excruciating stomach aches, terrible stomach aches. And the inventory that I wrote is not out of the book. I just wrote kind of a story of my life. And I, I, I know it wasn't a perfect one, but all I know is the stomach aches went away and I have never had them again. Isn't that amazing? If you think that the fourth step and fifth step don't work, by golly, that's to me, that's an amazing testament to those things because I, I don't know. Um, one of the things that I think about, uh, about inventory, and then, of course, she took me through the rest of the steps, uh, and uh, she's no longer in the program, but I call her every year on my Al-Anon birthday, just to thank her. But I, I think, you know, uh, I've done more than one inventory. And one of the inventories that I had to do was about my dad. Uh, my dad, uh, growing up, uh, he was a traveling salesman. He would leave on Monday, come home on Friday, and I knew we'd get it when he came home. It took me a while to figure out that my mother probably was telling him all the bad things that we had done all week. But we, we'd get we'd get. Not exactly beaten, but it was close. Uh, he would beat my brother. And uh, <clears throat> I was having a hard time with that. And he had a stroke, and we moved him back to this little town. And uh, he was in the care home, kind of in a fetal position. He could talk a little bit, but he couldn't walk or do anything like that anymore. It, it was a real serious stroke. And I would go stand at the end of his bed. And I would look at him and think, you deserve this. I was so angry with him. But then these tears would just run down my cheeks. And I knew I had to do something about that. And I, I guess I must have talked about it at my Al-Anon meeting. And, I, and a woman came up to me that was not my sponsor and said, I think I can help you. I had the same kind of troubles with my mother. Are you willing to do that? And I said, yes. And so she had me write an inventory about my dad. <clears throat> Inventories are interesting. You can think around and around and around your head, but if you write it down on a piece of paper and share it with somebody else, it changes. It really changes everything. What I discovered when I wrote that inventory about my dad was that I was the favored child. I had never thought of that I, it, when it came to me. And the other thing that came to me was uh, my dad had always introduced me to literature and helped me find books to read that would be good for me at my age. He helped me enjoy classical music. And when we lived in Wichita, I was one of the founding members of the Wichita Grand Opera. Who would have thought, you know, who would have thought? And so, you know, I can look at all the bad things he did, but I can, I also, when I wrote it down, realized the good things that he had done. And so I was instructed to go to his bedside and to put lotion on his face and hands and to make my amends for my behavior because he would try to call me uh, when he was well, and, and he would leave a message, and he would say, Susie, Susie, why won't you talk to me? 
And I, I kept thinking he deserved anything I did to him. And, uh, you know, he, there were unpleasant things about him, but, but I also knew about the good. And so I, I did what she said. And, um, what I have to tell you about that was when I did that, it was very shortly after that that he died, but I was free. I was free. I still am free. I need to talk a little bit about some forgiveness things because that was a forgiveness thing that I had to do with my dad and to my and for myself as well. <clears throat> Don talked about the fact that uh, he had had an affair. I don't know whether he had one or a dozen. I have no idea. It's not important to me. All I know is that I knew he had an affair. And uh, when we were going to the counselor, uh, he asked me, you know, I was talking to him about that, that I knew that my husband had had an affair. And uh, I said, I get these letters, phone calls for this from this woman. And the counselor said, what do you do when she calls? I said, well, I hang up the phone. And he said, don't hang up. And uh, what it, what happened then was that Don happened to be home when this phone call came in. And uh, I just looked at him and I just said, it's that woman. And he said, hang up the phone. <clears throat> and then what he did was he made amends to me and ultimately made amends to the woman that he'd had the affair with. I don't know who she was. I don't even know what she looked like. All I know is that uh, because of the steps of the program, he he quit having an affair. And as far as I know, he's I'm sure he's been faithful ever since. And like I say, he made me amends. But here's the thing. I couldn't let go of it. And I, I, I wrote inventories about it. I did everything that I could about it. And uh, I remember uh, one day... Uh, he came home from Denver and, you know, I said, how was business out there? And he said, I didn't go for business. I went to make amends to this woman. And uh, I got real panicky and I called my sponsor and she said, now I'm real busy. She it wasn't, she wouldn't want to talk to me. She said, I'm just getting ready to go on a bike ride. If you want to talk to me, get on your bike and meet me at this certain place and we'll go for a ride. And, you know, what I what I couldn't do, though, was I couldn't quite let go of it. And what was happening to me was in the bedroom, in the ceiling, flying up there, this woman was up there all the time. It was like this ghost of a woman was flying around up in our bedroom. And it was not, I was, it was not going well for Don and I. <clears throat> And so I talked to my sponsor again, and I told her, I said, this person is up there. And I said, I don't know what to do. And she said, ask her to leave. She left. I just said, leave. I'm done with you. I don't want you anymore. And you know, what a deal that is. Because I was taught how to forgive. I was taught what to do when I was in terrible, terrible things going on. It was, you know, I have a lot of forgiveness stories. Uh, one of the persons that I had to forgive was our son, because as as you heard last night, uh, our son died of this disease. 
and that was really, really hard for me. Uh, our our daughter-in-law called. Uh, he was married at this time, and they had a little boy about two. Our daughter-in-law called and said, "You better come." They were in Durham, and he had, he was a doctor. He graduated from the University of Colorado. Was doing his residency at Duke, and he had just graduated from medical school in about May or June, and he was dead by the end of August. Those of you who are young in this room, or are not, or older, please, please, don't make anybody in your family have to hold you in their arms while they turn the machines off. God, that was a terrible thing. And uh, because he was, they found him in his on-call room, he injected his ankle with some kind of a concoction. I don't believe that he tried to kill himself because the, and the, you know, something to bring him back was there. When he didn't show up for grand rounds, uh, they found him. And uh, he was brain dead, and there was nothing we could do. And his, his wife made the decision to turn off the machines, and we held him while the machines went dead. And that could be an awful story. It could be an awful story, except that his sponsor came and his sponsor, sponsor, all those, there was a whole bunch of people from his group that came to the hospital to be with us. This was before cell phones. And I have a really good friend named Beverly Bar Barnett, who uh, some of you may have heard speak. She called me at the hospital just right after Stephen died. And uh, she and her husband were tapers at the time. And so they moved around a lot, and so she gave me numbers of where she would be the next month or more so that I would have somebody to talk to. Her son had died of AIDS. It was because of drug abuse, but her son had died of AIDS six months prior. I, uh, I asked her sometime later, I said, why did you call me? because she was still in grief over her son, and she said, because somebody called me. Somebody called me. An AA woman was really helpful to me, because her son, we have a lot of deaths because of this disease. Her son had died on a motorcycle. Um, he was drunk, and he was killed on a motorcycle, and she called me. To talk to me and the thing that she said that was so important to me was people are going to say the time's going to go by but it's real important what you do with the time and I took that you know I just people in my group people that had worked with me as employees before friends my Al-Anon group his AA group they all came and just took care of us. They did. They took care of us. And uh, it took a long time uh, for for that to be okay. And uh, um, he has this little boy that he had uh, is now 23. So Stephen has been dead for a long time, but you never really get completely over that. But I've forgiven him for doing that uh, a long time ago. And uh, he couldn't really help it that he had that bad disease. Um, we 
we had an opportunity to speak at Founders Day last year, and uh, the uh, Don and I were sharing, and uh, and uh, a man came up on the stage, and he said, "You probably won't remember me." And I just started crying. I said, "Of course I do." He was Stephen's sponsor. You know, he had he had thought he was tired. He thought, well, he'll just go back to his room. And then he thought, no, I probably better go hear the speaker speakers. And uh, you know, and then we got to spend a lot of time with him at that meeting. And you know, those kinds of things are kind of sad, but uh, but you know. There's no guarantee that things aren't going to happen. Um, uh, somebody in the program said to me one time, issues are like tissues. They just keep popping up. And I think that's true. I think, I think those are the kinds of things. And Don talked to you about going to prison. And I, I didn't know what to do. There wasn't anything. I mean, what do I do? I was scared they were going to kill him, you know, and, and, uh, but I knew he was going to be going to Montgomery, Alabama, and so I called the World Service Office, the Alabama World, World, World Service Office, and they got me in touch ultimately with a lady named Peggy. And you know, they and a woman down there said, "You know, you need to talk to Peggy because Peggy's husband carries the prisoners to the meeting." And so, make a long story short. Uh, every time I went down to see my husband, uh, Peggy met me at the airport. She met us at the airport when Don and I came down when he went to prison. And every time she would, I could go into the prisons and take food. I don't know whether they still could do that or not on Saturday when I got to spend time with, with uh, Don. And she would have food. She She and her husband had Christmas. For our kids, we came down at Christmas because he was in jail during Christmas. So there, all there's just been so many people that have impacted our lives. There really has. Um, I still, I still go to meetings. I have a, I have, a, I go to meetings, two different Al-Anon meetings. But my home group is a, the Monday morning Al-Anon group on Marco Island, and then uh, on Wednesday mornings I go to another Al-Anon meeting. Uh, that's a new Al-Anon meeting. And then I go to Don's open AA meeting. I love to go to open meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is an open speaker meeting. And uh, it's been really fun because uh, somebody told me the other day, she had been at the, she was an AA woman that comes from Scotland and she was at the meeting. And here's all these guys and gals coming over, hugging me and saying nice things to me. And she said, what is the deal here? What are they doing? Paying homage to you? <laughs> and what the deal is that there's just been so much wonderful things that have happened in the program and to be able to meet such lovely people. I think that's the thing. And I continue to work the program. I have people that I sponsor. And uh, I have a sponsor now who is uh, who lives in Fort Worth, Texas. Her name is Beverly Ross. And uh, she's been my sponsor for over 20 years now. And I have a commitment. I call her right now. We, we, it's changed through the years, but I call her at 4 o'clock on Monday afternoon every week. And uh, it's changed my program. It's made me accountable to somebody. And uh, I've shared inventories and things with her. But, you know, we really do 
a tenth step every time I call. And that's been a really great thing. Um, what's our life like now? We, we've moved to Florida, Marco Island, Florida. You know, we have great groups that we're going to. We we live on a, it doesn't look exactly like your thing out here, but we live on a little bay and, uh, you know, palm trees. And it's just, it's really pretty. And in the, in that little bay, occasionally we'll have dolphins will play back there. And uh, one day we saw a, a manatee, a big manatee, and they're pretty docile. But there were two baby manatees and jumping and flipping their tails. And what a what a fun thing, you know. Sometimes we don't see see them being there, but uh, if we happen to be looking out, occasionally we'll see things like that, and uh, it just makes it and so great. And the sunsets are beautiful, like they are here, and uh, so we've really enjoyed it. And like I say, we have these wonderful, wonderful groups that we go to. I had occasion. I don't know where I got this, but I had occasion to find this writing from Sam Shoemaker. You know, he was one of the original people in the Oxford group. And I found this, and uh, I'm not, probably not going to be able to say it exactly as, how he wrote it, but it really impacted me because it said a lot of, I could say a lot of program people are like people at a train station. They're standing around, they can see the see the trains, they can smell the luggage, you know, everything about the train station, but they're not on the train. But those of us who are in the program <clears throat> need to get on the train. Maybe the train is going from St. Louis to Chicago. We can get on the train. We won't be at Chicago yet, but we'll be on the train. That's a form of commitment, to get on the train. And I, I don't know where I got that. I was getting stuff out of my file uh, because I had to do help with some workshops, and there it was. Somebody has given it to me. And it really impacted me because I thought, you know, I... Ever since I came to the program of Al-Anon, I've been on the train. I don't think I'm at the end yet, but I'm there. And I think, I don't know what life is going to bring. I do know, you probably have noticed I've had some problems walking. Well, uh, I've had troubles for a long time, not really for walking, but other things, and uh I finally decided I needed to get some other help. My neurologist that I had in Florida kept misdiagnosing me, and I finally went to Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. And the, the neurologist that I saw said, you've been dis misdiagnosed. And what I have is a form of muscular dystrophy. It's called oculopharyngeal muscular dystrophy. It affects my vision. It affects my swallowing. And it affects my muscles that they call the proximal muscles, which are around my hips and down my legs. And so that's why I have troubles. And um, so that's what's going on with me. And then I had some seizures. I mean, 
it's getting old is really interesting. And uh, so, <laughs> so I'm taking a medication which makes it more difficult for me to walk. So, uh, so that's what's been going on with me. And uh, uh, you know, uh, there isn't it's, an, it's a hereditary thing. So there isn't anything that I can really do much about it. But I'm getting ready to go see my neurologist at Johns Hopkins when I go for Thanksgiving. I talked about my daughter-in-law a little bit, and I just need to say that we had a daughter. We have a daughter as well, and uh, she has she and her husband live in Washington D.C. and they have two little kids that are uh, nine and twelve, and we have then we have a grandson, of course, from our son who's twenty-three, and they're all coming for Christmas. All our daughter-in-law, her new boyfriend. And his daughter, our four, you know, our daughter, her husband, and those two kids, our our 23-year-old grandson and his girlfriend, it, we're going to have a full house. We're going to have people sleeping everywhere. But we're really excited about that, you know, to have a family to get together. And our daughter converted to Judaism some time ago. And uh, so we have a whole Jewish contingent. It, you know, we're, when we go for Thanksgiving, we go to our daughter's house, and the Jewish folks all come too. And what a what a great life! You know, I'd have missed it all. I just would have missed it all. I I I don't know. Would I've been interested in staying in touch with our daughter-in-law? I don't know. And she in staying in touch with us. Uh, you know, there was a difference. And uh, she knew that we loved her. And uh, so she's always been our daughter-in-law. And our, our daughter is, you know, both of either one of them, anytime Don and I have ever had any surgeries or anything, either our daughter-in-law or our daughter comes to help. And it's, it's a great life. It's a great life. What I want to tell you <clears throat> to end my talk here is that, do you know the story of the Velveteen Rabbit? I don't know whether you have read that or not, but it, I'll tell you a little bit about it. It's about a little child who has this little rabbit, this little velveteen rabbit, and, you know, that they it just they love that little velveteen rabbit, and, you know, it's just been loved so much, the stuffing is coming out of it. And uh, But what happens with this little child is that they he loves or she loves that little velveteen rabbit so much that it became real. And that's what you've done for me, is that you loved me and loved me and loved me until I became real. And I'm really grateful for that, and thank you for having me. <clears throat>